Well, this morning I have in my hand a a book. This book has a rather audacious title. It's called The Complete Book of Questions. It implies that every question worth asking is in this book. And it has a subtitle, 1001 Conversation Starters for Any Occasion. I have it because I've used it for a lot of small group occasions uh, to open up areas of our life that we might not otherwise explore. But I went looking for the question that is at the heart of our discussion this morning. It's the question that Jesus poses at the turning point of his ministry. He says to his inner circle, who do you say that I am? It's not one of the good questions. It's not just one of the interesting questions. It is the question. I didn't find it in the complete book of questions. Not all questions are of equal value. Not even the great questions that Jesus asked that we've been exploring during this series. This question is the question above all questions that we need to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's the question, frankly, that that transcends the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. It's the question that, frankly, is on the heart of the crowds as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But on both occasions, there were false expectations and false hopes. Let's turn now to the scripture that uh, holds the question that we'll be exploring this morning. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 33. And let's read this text responsibly as is our custom. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. False expectations, false hopes. I think that's going to be one of the great relationship killers when we only see people through our false expectations and not see the person for who they really are. My guess is that at one time or another, all of us have had the experience of being looked through through the eyes of projected desires for somebody else wanted and desired for us to be, and they never saw us for who we really are. For 10 years, I served as senior pastor at a church in the San Jose area, commonly known as the Silicon Valley in Northern California. And I followed a much-beloved pastor who had a significant shaping influence on the congregation. Stan, in terms of his profile, my predecessor, was a tender-hearted shepherd who carefully taught the Bible 
to the, to the congregation and brought a very liberal congregation around to being Christ-centered. Stan retired, and I followed. At the time I became senior pastor of the church, there was a very influential man serving in a significant volunteer role on the church staff who would become my nemesis throughout my entire tenure over those 10 years. He was a retired IBM executive who faithfully served the previous senior pastor with his complimentary gifts of administration. My preaching style was quite a contrast to the previous preaching style. Stan had a very deliberative delivery. And as you have come to see, my pace is a little faster, as you have reminded me on many occasions. (laughs) My teaching had a sharper edge than Stan's did. I believed in a ministry of the whole body and not just lodging, caregiving, in the office of the senior pastor. And to my nemesis, I was failing as a shepherd. I was not living up to the image that had been shaped by my predecessor and his mentor. And he would say to me, we don't need somebody who is a prophet in the pulpit. We need a tender-hearted caregiver. I often felt invisible to this person. I wanted to say to him, do you see me? Do you see who I am? Can you allow me to be a gift to this congregation? If you just see me through your projected ideal, you will miss the value of my life. Can any of you relate to that story? (laughs) Have you ever had a similar kind of experience? Ever been on a job where the supervisor only saw you through their agenda and never saw you for who you were and what you had to offer? Maybe we've been in a home where parents had hopes and dreams for us that didn't fit and match who we were. We felt like they didn't really care who we are. Marriage partners can be like ships passing in the night because of some idealized picture of what they think we should be. I frankly confess that I almost brought our marriage to an end in the first decade of our life together because I had a checklist for Lily, things I expected her to be for me. And guess what? She was failing miserably. She didn't match up to that checklist. I almost missed the gift of who she is and the life we now have together. I think a major reason for Jesus posing the question, who do you say that I am, was to penetrate the false and distorted expectations that they had of him. The first Palm Sunday was shrouded with false hope that would lead to a profound disappointment. How did the crowds go from shouting Hosanna on Sunday to crucify him on Good Friday. What took place there? But before Jesus poses the more direct question, who do you say that I am? He asks a more general one to the disciples. And Jesus, I think, chooses to raise this particular question, in, it says, in Caesarea Philippi, because that was a Roman-dominated area. It was a place where Caesar was hailed as Lord. And in contrast, Jesus is saying, I'm Lord in contrast to Caesar. In verse 27, we read, On the way, he, Jesus, asked them, his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Hey, what's what's the word on the streets? How am I playing in Peoria? 
This may have been the first time that Jesus openly asked this question of his disciples and others, but it's not certainly the first time that this question was on the minds of people all around him. Anyone who did the things Jesus did and said the things Jesus said had to raise that question. Who is this? Who does he think he is? Anyhow. You might recall on one occasion that there were four friends that lowered a paralytic into Jesus' presence. And Jesus said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders were there thinking to themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus stilled the storms, his disciples said, who is this? Even the winds and the rain obey him. And on other occasions, certainly that same question was was asked. Who is this? I think the question of Jesus' identity is almost on every page of the New Testament. Napoleon summed it up well. I know men. And Jesus was no mere man. So let's hear the reports from the populace. Who do people say that I am? Disciples respond, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. In other words, the disciples report some pretty flattering things. You're pretty hot stuff, Jesus. I mean, John the Baptist, that's quite amazing. John the Baptist has already been beheaded. So now he must have been raised from the dead. Elijah, the prophet that was whisked away by a fiery chariot that would come back as the forerunner of the Messiah. Pretty heady stuff. At least one of the prophets, a miracle worker who could see right into the hearts of people. In other words, Jesus, you're in good company. You're held in high regard. I think that's true today, too, isn't it? The common response would be Jesus. (laughs) Quite a good man. There's been no one who has appeared on the cover of Time magazine more often than Jesus. Over 100 years ago, the famed British writer H.G. Wells wrote of Jesus, more than 1900 years have passed. A historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. The historian's test of greatness is, what did he leave to grow? Did he start men thinking along fresh lines with vigor that persisted after him? By this test, Jesus stands first. If you want to establish a standard, Jesus becomes the model, doesn't he? If you want to endorse your movement, co-opt Jesus for your purposes. We love to make Jesus over into our image, don't we? In the business world, according to Lori Beth Jones, Jesus is the model CEO. She wrote a book, Jesus CEO. The Cuban government distributes a painting of Jesus with a rifle slung over his shoulder. (laughs) The paradigm revolutionary. To the white supremacists, Jesus believed in the purity of the white race. Pretty amazing since he was an olive skinned Jew, but never let facts get in the way. Norm Evans, a former NFL National Football League lineman, wrote a book entitled On God Squad. In it, he says this, I guarantee you that if Christ were the t- alive today, he would be the toughest guy who ever played the game. I would picture him as a six-foot, six-inch, 260-pound defensive tackle who will always make the big plays. You name it, 
He's the all-purpose Jesus. Use him for whatever cause we want him to be. But the late evangelist Tom Skinner, I think, put it well. He said, Jesus will not be used for our causes, whether it's the right or the left. Jesus didn't come to support our causes. He came to take over. Jesus, you see, isn't really looking for admirers. He's looking for followers on his terms, not ours. Flattery really doesn't go very far with Jesus. Thus, Jesus turns to the question of our our morning. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, we may have become overly familiar with that question, and therefore we lose the impact of what Jesus is really saying. So let me put that question in a different context and help you capture the shocking thing that Jesus is really asking here. Suppose I would say to you this morning, congregation, family of God, I've served you here at Christ Church for over seven years now. I ask you, who do you think I am? You sense the audacity of that question? It would imply that there is a real identity that has been hidden up to this moment. That I am some mysterious figure who carries more significance than you realize. The question also raises the expectation that perhaps a momentous announcement is ready to be made. Who do you say that I am? And I think by asking that question, Jesus is saying that uh, his identity is the center of the matter of it all. I don't know for sure the dynamics of what happened in that moment when Jesus asked the question. But my guess is that there was a pause before Peter gave his answer. (laughs) Who do you say that I am? My disciples. And they were probably looking at each other, maybe looking down at their shoes, their sandals, (laughs) not catching eye contact with Jesus. And then finally, Peter, the disciple with no unexpressed thoughts, says, you are the Christ. Matthew adds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, what was Peter affirming here? We so often speak of Jesus Christ as if Jesus is the given name and Christ is his surname. But Peter is saying Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the long expected one who was to come. And Peter gets an amen from Jesus. Again, in Matthew, we read Jesus' commendation of Peter. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Hold on, Peter. Hold on to that commendation because there's something difficult coming. Jesus accepts the designation of Messiah, but he immediately begins to say some very disturbing things. He redefines Messiah in terms that are unacceptable to Peter and to his disciples. So we read in verses 30 and 31. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again from the dead. How quickly things change. Peter, on one moment, went from being a friend of God to now being the enemy. And so we read in verse 33, he spoke plainly about this, Jesus did, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. For you have not in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter, you see, had distorted and false expectations of what the Messiah would be. He could not see Jesus in those terms. He had given a creedal statement. You are the Christ. On the surface, he gave the right answer. On most Sundays, as we've done today, we stand up and we say the Apostles' Creed, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pastor Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Third day, he rose again from the dead. We can say that every week, can't we? Without really understanding the impact of that creed upon our life. It's Peter who gave a great creedal statement. You are the Christ. It's a good answer to the Sunday school quiz. Who is Jesus? <laughs> but Peter had in mind to see a very different Messiah than Jesus was articulating, didn't he? To Peter, Jesus was going to be that hero in the line of David who would rise up and overthrow Roman rule, bring back the prowess to Israel, and reestablish their glory as a nation. That was what he had in mind. That's why he signed up to be with Jesus. Uh, his answer was a very personal one. I, when you get into your kingdom, I want to be right there in a position of power right next to you in your new regime, Jesus. And Jesus started articulating a description of the Messiah that Peter knew nothing about. A Messiah who dies? That was an oxymoron. That was a train wreck. In Peter's mind. You can't put those two things together. Remember Dan's sermon from last week? Are you confused? Jesus intentionally confuses Peter at this moment. Because he had to get rid of those false notions of the Messiah. In order to replace them with another one. So Jesus says. He began to teach them. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and must be killed and after three days rise again. The key word there is must. He must. Jesus understood that he was on a divine timetable. That he was heading towards Jerusalem with a mission to complete. And that mission would only be completed in his death. That the cross was central to God's plan for his life. It wasn't that the political forces got out of control and he got caught up in a movement and therefore was put to death. It wasn't that the religious leaders uh, turned against him. Those were all bit players in God's grand plan. But Peter would have none of it. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, messiahs don't die. Messiahs lead armies. Messiahs overthrow evil. They are not victims of other people's actions. We have been victims far too long. I think Peter had already visualized that ticker tape parade as they were going into Jerusalem. The confetti was coming down from the buildings. There was going to be a victory lap around Jerusalem, and he got to be a part of that victory lap. 
perhaps on Palm Sunday. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, Peter was already saying, maybe I misunderstood this hope. Maybe we're going to have that victory after all. The day was playing out, maybe just as Peter had hoped it was. So we read in Scripture, when he, Jesus, came near the place where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus accepts that adulation when the religious leaders are saying, silence the crowds. What does Jesus say? I tell you, if we keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I am he who you have long expected. But Jesus says, I'm coming in a very different way than you expected. Jesus knows that those shouts of praise will turn to disappointments. Unmet expectations will yield a chorus of what? Crucify him, crucify him. As Jesus descended that serpentine road that overlooked Jerusalem, he said these very sad words. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You didn't see me. You held on to your own image of what you wanted me to be. Because of that, you rejected me. See, Peter had uttered the right words. You are the Christ. But he didn't have the right content. And I think in Jesus asking the question, who do you say that I am? He's looking for far more than a Sunday school answer. He wants us to answer it with our life. You see, he's not looking for admirers. Jesus is looking for followers. On the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, I think Peter is still holding on to the false images of what he hopes Jesus will be. You might recall that Jesus gathers on the night before the cross in the upper room with his disciples. And one of the main things that happens in that room is that Jesus plays the role of the servant, washing the feet of his disciples. We celebrate that this Thursday night, a Monday Thursday. Jesus took a towel and put it over his arm and a wash basin in his hand, and he knelt down in front of his disciples. He took their feet and began to wash them. And you can see as the whole scene is unfolding there that uh, Peter is next. Peter's anticipating his turn where Jesus will wash his feet. And what's Peter's response? Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Quit being that suffering Messiah. That's not the one I signed up for. Why Peter's resistance at this moment? I think because he 
still held on to the false notions of what it meant to follow Jesus. So I think Jesus was saying to Peter in this act of servanthood three things. Jesus said to Peter, I am the one who is humble and lowly of heart. See, Jesus' act of servanthood upset everything that Peter understood about worth and value. In his understanding of kingdom, the greater was over the lesser. The lesser served the greater. As the disciples were coming into this last meal, we know in Luke that they were still arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom. They're still jockeying for position about who's going to be on top. And what does Jesus do? The greater serves the lesser. And Peter is to learn from that. Jesus said to Peter, I am the one who is vulnerable and puts my life on the line. Even Jesus can be needy and vulnerable. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane when he falls down before his father. With sweats of blood from him, he, he cries out to his father, Abba, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I need to know that you're going to be with me even in this toughest of times. And here Peter is receiving on the receiving end of the Lord's service to him. And to be on the receiving end is a very vulnerable position, isn't it? It's one thing to be strong and condescending and help somebody else who's lower than you are. It's quite another to need help from somebody else. And Jesus is essentially saying, unless you know how to receive, you don't know how to give. And then finally, Jesus says to Peter, I am the one who gets down into the grime of people's lives. I think sometimes we religious people want to keep Jesus on the mantelpiece, (laughs) out of the grime and dirt of where real life is lived. And Jesus says, that's where I get involved, in the grime and dirt and well, where real things are happening. George MacLeod put it powerfully. I am recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on the town garbage heap, a place where cynics talk smut, thieves curse, and soldiers gamble, because that is where he died, and that is what he died about, and that's where churchmen ought to be. Who do you say that I am? We answer that with our life, with our life of servanthood, with our life of being needy and vulnerable before our brothers and sisters, with our life of being at the broken places of people's lives. Why? We serve a crucified Messiah. There's a powerful story told that came out of the former Soviet Union that points to the attractive power of the sacrifice of Christ. In their periodic efforts to eradicate religious beliefs, the KGB agents would infiltrate the nation's churches on a Sunday morning. And one agent was struck by the deep devotion of an elderly woman who was kissing the feet of a life-size carving of Jesus on the cross. This KGB agent said, Babushka, uh, grandmother, Are you prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved secretary general of our communist party? She replied immediately, why, of course, but only if you crucify him first. (laughs) 
Let me close this message with a phenomenal summary of our text that comes from a very unlikely source. It comes from the lead singer of the band U2, Bono. And he's captured, I think, the answer to our question this morning. He's being interviewed, and the interviewer asks him this question. Christ has his rank among the world's greatest thinkers, but son of God, isn't that far-fetched? Bono replies, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm saying, not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please, just a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word because, you know, we're going to crucify you. And he goes on. No, no, I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps. But actually, I am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh, my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for however half the globe could have changed and and turned around upside down by a nutcase. Now that's (laughs) far-fetched. That's why the greatest question you can ask or answer is, Who do you say with your life that Jesus is? Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, this morning we are being asked to look at our life and see what the answer to that question is. Who are you according to the way I am living in relationship to you? And you ask me to be a servant that lays down my life as you did. You ask me to be open and vulnerable and show my need to others around me as you did. You ask me to be there in the broken places of people's lives because that's where you were. That's what you took on. Lord, who do I say that you are by the way that I live? Help us to see an answer to that even more clearly. Through Christ we pray. Amen.